2010, and when I moved here for grad school, and I Google searched churches in Iowa City, came to Veritas, and I've never gone anywhere else. And I met my husband here, and we have two kids. And as of a few months ago, we have a puppy. Um, I do want to take a moment, though, to talk about puppies, just for a second, before we get into Colossians. Because here's the thing. I think there's probably three camps of people in this room. The first one is people that have a dog, and you love it. It's probably the best dog in the world. Good for you. You don't have to listen to me for the next two minutes. The second group is those of you who do not have a dog, and you have no desire to get a dog. You don't have to listen to me either, because you are the wise ones in this room, okay? (laughs) Yeah. And the third group is me a few months ago who do not have a dog, but you wish you had a dog. Let me tell you something. There is an adorably evil rumor going around that in this area that it's a good thing to get a dog. And it's horrible, you guys. It's horrible. I, in an attempt for people to give you a dose of reality, they say things like, you know, it's kind of like having a newborn. Um, I, so when I'm not home with my kids, I work a little bit at the hospital with newborns, particularly ones that are very sick or born with untypical situations. I've never seen a newborn born with like a full set of arrowhead sharp teeth. (laughs) And you don't put like a soft fuzzy on top of their kennel and they just look at it all day. No, their favorite toy is your one-year-old and you can't put a diaper on them. They smell worse after giving a bath than they did before the bath. (laughs) So you're probably like, okay, this girl's okay, but we're talking about Colossians, right? Here's the thing. I, before getting the dog, had no idea the power of a dog and therefore the influence it would have on my life. Um, The Colossi Church, they have lost their vision of Christ and, and his power and how that affects their life. Or we could say they've lost their vision of the relationship between Christ and God and therefore who they are in Christ. So a few weeks ago, um, a few weeks ago in the study, not just this past week, but we read Colossians 2, 8, which kind of summarizes this problem. So I'll read it for you here. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And we can relate to this, right? Maybe it's not puppies. Maybe they're not the evil spirits of the world, but we do... (laughs) Maybe not, I don't know yet. Um, But we live in a world where we're surrounded by broken people, broken systems, broken politics. And sometimes I look at humanity. I was just on the phone with my sister the other day and we're talking about poverty and homelessness and abuse and orphans. And I start to wonder, how did we mess this up so bad? How did we get here and what do we do now? Is there a point to being a little image bearer like Rebecca talked about last week? And sometimes, slowly, even unconsciously or quickly, I take my gaze off Jesus and I am focused on the brokenness that's around me. And I sink into my fears, my insecurities, my condemnations, and my sin. And why is it easier to do this? Why is it easier to look all around me instead of fixing my gaze on Jesus? It's because we are the offspring of the literal firstborn Adam. We have union with him in our sin. Adam is our head. All right, so we're just gonna briefly go back to Genesis. I know it's a familiar story, but real quick, to remind ourselves of of Adam's relationship to God. So 
In Genesis 2, we see Adam and Eve created in the image of God after his likeness, and they're not declared good, but very good. So there's a relationship established here. A unique set-apart relationship is established and declared over. And then what happens soon after? The tempter comes. And we know this story well. He questions God's provision by questioning what? Adam and Eve's true father and their identity in him. Did God really say not to eat from this tree? Because if he loved you, he would let you eat from this tree. And if you come, come under my headship, I'd let you eat from this tree. And then you would know all things and you'd be really powerful. So cast him off and come under my headship. And that's what we see them do. They diminish their view of God, his power, his supremacy, his deity, and therefore they have an inaccurate perspective of who they are as sons and daughters of an all-powerful, all-loving father. And so they're cast off into the wilderness. So this is the outline to all of our stories, right? Because we're the offspring of Adam. We all live stories where we diminish God, we take matters into our own hands, and we cast him off as our father. And we don't just cast him off, we then step under a new head. We always have some sort of head, whether it's God or something else. Our lives are stories of casting off the fatherhood of our true father and walking into a wilderness. In our study this past week, we also looked at Israel, who's also declared firstborn, not because they are the literal first people born, but because they are chosen and set apart in the eyes of God. And Rebecca talked about the Israelites in the wilderness last week, so again, we'll just recap it briefly. But Israel's just been miraculously freed from a life of slavery and oppression in Egypt. So God just reached down into their mess and saved them and brought them to a wilderness. And they're hungry, thirsty, they don't know their immediate future, and what do we see them do? They grumble, doubt, and complain to the point where they wished for their old life of slavery back because at least they would have a full tummy. At least they won't be thirsty. To the point where they make their own God. They build a golden calf that they can see, that they can touch, that they don't have to wait wait on anymore. They remove their gaze from Jesus. They forget the powerful God that is their father and they cast him off and they come under the head of themselves. They become their own gods. So we see two examples in the Old Testament where a person or a group of peoples being declared firstborn and then the tempter comes immediately after and they give in to the fear and the doubt that surrounds them. This hits close to home for me because we're not too far off from the Israelites or Adam and Eve. We are the offspring of Adam. We live in this messy world full of sick people like us doing horrible things, broken marriages, broken families, broken systems, they're all around us and it's overwhelming and sometimes it even feels debilitating. We participate in this. I would say most of us know God as our father and maybe even our savior. If someone off the street asks you who Jesus is, you might say he's my savior, he died on the cross, da, da, da. But I feel day to day in the mundane tasks, we often diminish God or I diminish God. I become impatient and I take matters into my own hands. So I am casting him off on a daily basis and stepping into a new headship or we're fixing our eyes on our condemning past or our unknown future, and we're not focused on who our true father is. So also in this study, we looked up the parable of the tenants, and they were in charge of a vineyard, right? So this will be fast, Um, stick with me. Um, A vineyard owned by somebody else that was gonna be gone for a while, so they put some tenants in charge. So 
the owner is supposed to represent God, the tenants represent the scribes and chief priests. So they're supposed to harvest the fruit while the owner's gone and then give the fruit back to him. But we see that they are selfish and they just care about their own needs. And so the owner sends um, servants or God sends prophets um, to remind them of their job, to tell them to come back to the Lord, come, remind them what they're supposed to do. So we see the first servant come and he gets beaten and sent away. The second servant comes and he gets sent away. And then we see the third servant come who is the owner's son. So time out from this story for a sec because we're on the other side of the cross versus the people who are hearing this parable. And we know why the owner sent the third servant. We know why God sent his son. Because when Jesus steps onto the scene, he is declared, he's my son whom with I am well pleased. There's a relationship established and it's declared over. And then he gets sent into the wilderness. This all sounds familiar. He, Jesus came to redo all of these temptation scenes. And why doesn't he fall into temptation or doubt his father's identity? Because in Colossians 1:15b. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. So because he's the exact imprint or image of the invisible God, like we talked about last week in verse 15a, by right, he is the firstborn, the true and better firstborn. Verse 15b says the firstborn of creation, or I like the NIV says over all creation, which I feel conveys the idea better that Jesus is not created, but he is the creator. He's the joint owner of the vineyard. He was with God and the Holy Spirit before, in the beginning and before the beginning, before there was a beginning. When God spoke to the skies and the seas and the birds, he was speaking Jesus into them because Jesus is the word. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is the word of life being spoken into creation. So by right, and now by rank and authority, he's the true and better firstborn. So the tenets in this parable, or the scribes and chief priests of the time, don't yet know this, but they do know that this third servant, the son, is a little different than the other two. So they're assuming if the owner's sending their son, then something must have happened to the owner. He must be out of the picture. So if we take care of the son, then this could all be ours. And so that's what they plan to do. They plan to kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. And we know this is a foreshadowing of what's to come because just in a few days' time of Jesus sharing this parable, the scribes and chief priests will cry out for his blood and want to kill him. So instead of Jesus punishing the scribes and chief priests for not doing their job, which he could have easily done, he pours out grace upon grace upon grace by predicting his death and then allowing it to happen. Jesus is our true and better firstborn lamb of God, and in his death, he becomes our vineyard or our vine, the vine that does produce good fruit. And the only way we can harvest good fruit and give it back to him is if we are in him, if we come under his headship. John 15, five says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can't do anything. So I just wanna make sure we're seeing this. So Jesus, the creator of the universe. So sometimes I feel like there's this idea or at least I am guilty of this idea that God is like Coke and Jesus is Diet Coke. I think Jen Wilkin has this example. So Coke, like God is the real deal and Jesus is like a lighter version of it. Um, 
But no, he's the co-owner of the vineyard. He's the creator of the universe. He was with God and the Holy Spirit before there was a concept of time. He had perfect union with God and the Holy Spirit with no needs or desires. But yet, he left his heavenly throne to come to earth as a weak baby and enter into our wilderness to be our true and better firstborn, to exercise judgment over good and evil by crushing the serpent's head when Adam didn't. He stayed true to his identity in the father in the wilderness when the Israelites didn't. And he bore the image of God perfectly and when Adam and the Israelites didn't. First John 1, 1 through 2 says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was from the Father and was made manifest to us. So Jesus is leaving his throne and coming as a baby into our wilderness. So that means we now get to cast off our fatherhood of Adam. We get to cast off our sinful history and put on the fatherhood of Jesus, the headship of Jesus. We no longer have union with Adam, but we get to step into unity with Christ and the Trinity. So when we have union with Christ, we take on a new history and a new story. And that doesn't mean that our, that our stories, our individual stories and histories don't matter. In fact, that's quite the opposite. They do matter. Our testimonies, they shape and they mold us and they point to the power of Jesus in our lives. But when we cast off the fatherhood of Adam and take on Jesus, our sinful history and stories are decentered, and we're reorientated to Christ. And so our histories are just now seen from a new perspective. And the beautiful thing is Jesus doesn't just shove them to the side and stamp a Jesus face on it. No, he redeems even that. He redeems even our sinful stories and histories, and so those point back to Jesus. So I'm just gonna illustrate this for you real quickly with this journal of mine that I had in third grade. <laughs> um, my teacher, my third grade teacher, Mrs. Ellinger, she required my, me and all my classmates to write in this every day. Um, if you're a teacher, and I know I have like three of them in my group alone, um, I beg you to do this because you will find things out about your students that you never would have known. Um, so my mom's kept this in my baby book for all these years and I finally decided to get it out and read it. And it was mostly hilarious. It's mostly about recess being good because I played soccer, but lunch not so good because there were bumblebees, you know. But um, then I got to this page. <laughs> November 8th, 1995. Dear Mrs. Ellinger, I wanted to tell you that my mom, oh, oh don't want to go there yet. Oh, I want to tell you a different one first, sorry. <laughs> October 26, 1995. Dear Mrs. Ellinger, today I'd like to talk about some of my relatives who smoke and how to get them to stop. Well, first, I'll name some people that I know who smoke. Number one, my dad. Number two, my dad's mom. Number four, forgot three, my dad's dad. Uh, first, I'd like to talk about my dad. Well, he drinks alcohol and beer, oh, and tobacco, and my dad lies a lot. One time he told me he would fix my closet door about two months ago and still hasn't, and there's, there's been a lot more lies that he's done, but I'll have to ask my mom if I can tell you. <laughs> and my dad lies about things just so he can go out and drink. So that's my dad. Now let's talk about my dad's mom. Oh, and by the way, my dad doesn't live with us anymore. Now we can talk about my dad's mom. <laughs> well, I don't know as much because I was really little, but I do remember one thing is when I walked into her house, I couldn't breathe because of all the smoke. 
and I don't know anything about my dad's dad because he died when I wasn't born. And right now, my dad's mom died too. So I think pretty soon my dad's probably going to die. Love, Emily. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I was like laughing and crying when I read that. Okay, now November 8th, 1995. A few days later. Dear Mrs. Ellinger, I wanted to tell you that my mom is in the hospital because she has breast cancer. So my grandma and grandpa are staying with Amy, Michael, and I, and what they did to my mom is remove the breast and put a fake one on. But now it's all done, but she has to stay there for three more days. But if you want to go visit her, I'll ask my grandma and grandpa what her room number is. <laughs> Love, Emily. So this is, this is a small glimpse into my story. This is my history and, and my family's generational history, right? And that's shaped me and it's molded me in really good ways and bad. And it still does. It shapes my marriage. It shapes how I raise my kids. Um, but it no longer defines me because I get to decenter that and take on Jesus' history and his story. I get to see my life, my history from a new perspective and all the people in it from a new perspective because now I'm living in Jesus' story. So I was hesitant to share this because I, after Bible study tonight, I don't have to go home to a dad that drinks too much or a mom that's super sick. But some of you do. Some of you, after Bible study tonight, will go home to strained relationships, to broken families, to foster kids that have an unknown future, to teenagers that you feel you can't relate to. We are yearning and straining for a new creation and a new earth, but we aren't there yet. We live in this world, but we don't have to wait for eternity to cast off our sinful fatherhood that's in this world. So last week I um, volunteered with summer camp here at Veritas and it was a lot of fun and exhausting. Um, and I was so impressed. So after every activity, the middle schoolers, I think, or the youths, that's what they kept calling them, um, were in charge of the activities. And after every activity, they would talk about how X related to the gospel, like how dodgeball relates to the gospel. I'm like, oh, please tell me. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> and, but one was interesting because um, he asked the question to four-year-olds. I have four-year-olds. He said, um, what is the goal to this life? And I was like, oh, geez, get your notebooks out, you guys. Um, and he said to go to heaven, to, to have eternity with Jesus. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> like, you got to put a wig on and come to our Colossian study because you're missing something. I love talking about eternity. It blows my mind that there's a spot secured for us with no more crying or tears or pain. But until then, are we just supposed to trudge through this world on our own and just do our best? No, that's the whole point. That's the whole reason Jesus left his spot so he could make a spot for us. He came into our wilderness so that we could have a spot in eternity, right? So we yearn and we long to be fully redeemed, but until then, we decenter ourselves, we fix our eyes on Jesus, and we walk through this messy world and watch for him. So Paul's assumption in Colossians is that when we have union with Jesus, we start to be characterized by him. Because the only reason we even have eternity to look forward to in the first place is because we're seen as firstborns that have a right to an inheritance. And that's not on our own. It's only because we're in Jesus who is the firstborn. 
Ephesians says, um, you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So our histories are important, but they're not the determining history. You once were darkness, but that's not who you are now. A new identity has been granted. It doesn't say you're part light, but still kind of part darkness, or try really hard to be light. No, when you're in the Lord, you are light. So our wilderness, our world, um, our ugly, sinful world we live in is waiting to be redeemed. And if, you keep, if we keep our gaze on Jesus, we can slowly see this happening now. We don't have to wait for eternity to start seeing glimpses of it now. And then we get to take that with us into eternity. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 16 starts with the word for, as if, as if it's describing verse 15b. Jesus is firstborn over creation because he created creation. All things were created through him and for him. Instead of verse 16 saying, for by him, the other things of like nature were created or the rest of the things were created. No, all things were created. A phrase that is absolute and comprehensive and admits of no exception. This is the supremacy of our Lord. He's in charge of all things. Nothing can happen in history or in space without his permission. He is the sphere through which he created it for the sole purpose of his glory. Creation is for him. Creation is through him. Creation is in him. For him, through him, in him. A quote from a book I'm reading said, Jesus is the environment or force field, the sphere of influence within which we live and which determines our thought and conduct. This should be so comforting to us because when we go through the process of casting off the fatherhood of Adam, and sometimes it's a painful process, it's all within the sphere of Jesus. You're never outside of his sphere, no matter how disqualified you are, because he created all things through him, for him, and within his sphere. This should allow us to decenter our shame and run to Jesus with all our vulnerabilities and doubts and fears and condemnations and find comfort under his headship. Because he came to crush the serpent's head when Adam didn't. So because of who our father is, because of who our head is, we get to stand on top of our sin and condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So Paul is writing to bring the, Col the Colossi church back to this truth, back to this reality. The truth that there is a transcendent, uncreated, beginningless God of the universe who was self-sustaining, self-sufficient, yet sent his son Jesus to be mocked and beaten and nailed to a Roman cross. The word of God, who was present at creation, heard no words from God when he was on the cross. Silence. Jesus left his union with God and the Holy Spirit, his perfect relationship, so he could bring us into union with them. On the cross, Jesus, the word of God cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why did God forsake Jesus so that he didn't need to forsake us? Spurgeon has a quote that says, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest so that we could live in union with him, so that we could reorient our centeredness and remember that in him, we are saints 
who get to stand on our sin, who get to lift our eyes away from the brokenness of our world and fix our gaze on Jesus until the day he returns or calls us home. We have an identity with a history and a story that we get to live in now on this earth while we wait to be fully redeemed. So may we find rest for our souls as we daily bring ourselves back to the reality, like it says in Acts 17, that in him we live and move and exist in the sphere of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So may we decenter ourselves and reorient our hearts and minds to Jesus so that he becomes greater and we become less. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for leaving your heavenly throne and stepping into our wilderness. Thank you for reaching into our mess and delivering us, placing us in union with you. You are our creator, our savior, and our Lord. Help us to continue walking through this wilderness with the confidence that in you we can rest with no fear, no shame, and no condemnation. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.